0: Reflections on St. Paul's Letter to the Romans by Gil Bailey Produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 2 What was going on in, that, in chapter 2 in Galatians is a little bit like what was happening in America in the 1830s with regard to slavery. It was sort of, well, let's just have some of them go there and some of them go there and hope that it never comes to a head. Hope that we never have to settle this thing for sure. Clearly, but gradually and gradually, uh, it couldn't be put off. So, here's Luke's version of it, which is ironic and in pastel. And then you, and then I'll give you Paul's version. Here's Luke's version. Then some men came from Judea and taught the brothers, unless you have came up to Antioch from Judea, unless you have yourselves circumcised in the tradition of Moses, you cannot be saved are Judean Christians, Jew- Jewish Christians. This led to a disagreement. And after Paul and Barnabas had had a long argument with these men, it was decided that Paul and Barnabas and the others of the church should go up to Jerusalem and discuss the question with the apostles and elders. They were welcomed grac- graciously, you know. But certain members of the Pharisee party who had become believers objected, insisting that the Gentiles should be circumcised and instructed to keep the law of Moses. As the apostles and elders meant to look into the matter. So Peter gave a speech in which he says, in Luke's version and Acts, God has no favorites, so we can't oblige these people to, to live up to the law. We've never been able to do it. Our ancestors have never been able to do it. Christ has liberated us. So he's talking a lot like to Paul, Peter is. The entire assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul describing all the signs and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And then James was the real, James was the uh, the one who had to be convinced. James had the trump card in the way he was Jesus' brother. Now, there's a lot of hemming and hawing about that, you know, in the, in the church and in, among exegetes. But still, clearly James had a kind of leverage so that, and he was, more reluctant even than Peter to concede that Paul was right. So this, I think, also is kind of funny. James gets up and says, My verdict is, then, that instead of making things more difficult for the Gentiles to turn, uh, who turn to God, we should send a letter telling them merely to abstain from anything polluted by idols, to abstain from illicit marriages, and from meat of strangled animals, and from blood. And at this point, in my version of it, Peter clears his throat. <laughs> <laughs> Peter, who's trying to get a compromise worked out here, James is going on, and Peter's saying, It's going down the tubes. And, it, you know, all he has to do is a couple more ticks, and it's gone, right? <laughs> James. Uh, <laughs> you see? <laughs> so they work out the compromise. Well, here's, so here's Paul's version of it in Galatians. When Cephas came to Antioch, then I did oppose him to his face, since he was manifestly in the wrong. Before certain people from James came, Peter used to eat with Gentiles. But as soon as these came, he backed away and kept apart from them out of fear of the circumcised and the rest of the Jews put on the same act that he did, so that even Barnabas was carried away by their insincerity. And this is where Paul comes up out of his chair. When I saw, though, that their behavior was not true to the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, Since you, though you are a Jew, live like Gentiles and not like the Jews, how can you compel the Gentiles to live like the Jews? We were born Jews and not Gentile sinners. Excuse me. We, who were born Jews and not Gentile sinners, have nevertheless learned that someone is reckoned as upright not by practicing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And we too came to believe in Jesus Christ, as uh, so as to be reckoned as upright by faith in Christ and not by practicing the law, since no human being can be found upright by keeping the law. Now, if we too are found to be sinners on the grounds that we seek justification in Christ, it would surely follow that Christ was at the service of sin. In other words, if we now say, oh, we should have been keeping the law all these past few years when when we weren't, and now we go back to it, if we start keeping it, that means we should have kept it. And if we should have kept it we didn't, why didn't we? Because Jesus led us astray. That's what it means, he says, when you come back to it. It destroys everything. This is crucial for Paul. The question of inclusion or exclusion is not one that can be settled independently of the question of Christian faith itself. Paul had persecuted the Christian movement because it had blurred the distinctions that were so precious to his religious life as a practicing Pharisee. The barrier between Jews and Gentiles was an indispensable feature of this religious exclusiveness. For Paul, the rigorous system of Jewish exclusiveness vis-a-vis the Gentiles was the defining characteristic of the system that killed Jesus. To exclude Gentiles from the Christian community was to return to the closed religious system that had brought about the crucifixion. Let Let me use an example. Paul has been there. And Paul has seen the whole thing, experienced the whole journey into the heart of darkness. He knows it. So a little thing that nobody else would notice, he notices. All we are asking him to do is to be circumcised. It's no big deal. We're trying to spread the message to everybody. We just ask them to go through this one little step before they get to it. And Paul says, "Not you don't realize. It. Doing that is falling right back into the system that killed Christ. You don't you don't see it. I see it because I used to define that. You see. So I would say the the metaphor for or the example of this would be, let's say. Uh, people come in a certain way. This is a valid metaphor today. You know, there are a lot of young people in the world who who fundamentally know know anything about what the swastika means. And so, just out of a kind of casual rebelliousness, you know, they can wear the swastika. But people who know what it means look at it, and these kids. I'm sure some of these kids. Some of them, of course, know that they're tweaking the older generation. But there's, or maybe there's a milder form of it. You know, flying the Confederate flag. You know, when I grew up in the South, everybody flew the Confederate flag. You know what I mean? There are these certain things that we don't see. And then suddenly you're able to see them. Good God, you you don't do that. You see what I mean? Well, what I'm trying to—the analogy I'm trying to draw here—is that Paul is so aware of these, where these things lead, that things come up that nobody else sees the sacrificial uh, innuendo. Nobody else sees that they lead to this sacrificial madness, and he knows it does, and so he blows the whistle on it right away. Back to Galatians, and then we're getting close to the end here. Galatians. You stupid people of Galatia. <laughs> he's, he's outraged. You stupid people of Galatia. After you have had a clear picture of Jesus Christ crucified right in front of your eyes, who has put this spell on you? Isn't that amazing? What cures you of this is Christ crucified. Don't you see where it leads? Now, he, they, they don't see where it leads. And he's saying, it's like saying to, the, to these kids, you know, go to the Holocaust Museum. Go see Schindler's List. Do something for God's sake, but don't wear that swastika. That's what Paul's saying. It'll come to that. You stupid people of Galatians. How was it that you received the Spirit? Was it by the practice of the law? or by believing in the message you heard. Having begun in the Spirit, can you be so stupid as to end in the flesh? Paul's use of the term the flesh, sarx in Greek, is so powerful that I'm itching to deal with it when we get to it in a couple of weeks. It's a tremendously powerful. Infinitely more powerful than we've ever I mean, we have... The modern world set out to find to use that phrase to write Paul off it's unbelievable it's so powerful but I must say in this passage I think he's using it in a in a in a limited way much limited way every time he uses the word flesh it has all the ramifications but foremost in this usage it's simply it's simply circumcision he's talking I mean He's talking about the foreskin, you know. He's saying, you you began in the Spirit. Are you so stupid as to end in the flesh? And the irony of his remark is that, are you so stupid as to sit around arguing about who has a foreskin and who doesn't? You see, it's like that. But all the other ramifications of the flesh are there too. But... Uh, Like I say, Paul knows how to make an argument, and this is quite powerful. Paul says in Galatians, we were confined under the law, kept under constraint until faith should be revealed. So the law was our custodian until Christ came. Now this is quite amazing. The law, and here he means not only the Torah, but the Greek law, the, the realm of law, is the realm which tries to restrain sin. And Paul says, we can't do it. Sin always takes advantage of the law. That's another way, it's Paul's way of saying Satan casts out Satan. So the, the realm of law existed to keep us reasonably civil until Christ came to explode all that. Now this This is what the letter to Romans is all about, and it's unbelievable. It's a message that is so much more powerful than anything that has been written in the last 500 years. It's unbelievable. It's the one thing that can tell us what's really going on in our world today. One thing that I would say, about I'm going to read something that is Pauline from C.S. Lewis. People said, well, you know, you don't have to be Christian. All you have to do is lead a good life. And uh, so they said, what, about, why don't you think of, what do you think about that? Yes, Lewis, here's what he said. Intellectual honor has sunk very low in our age. I hear, one, I hear someone whimpering on with his question, will it help me? Will it make me happy? Do you really think I'd be better if I became a Christian? Well, if you must have it, my answer is yes. But I don't like giving an answer at this stage at all. Here is a door behind which, according to some people, the secret of the universe is waiting for you. Either it's true or it isn't. And if it isn't, then what the door really conceals is, is simply the greatest fraud, the most colossal cell on record. Isn't it obviously the job of everyone to try to find out which, And then to devote his full energies either to serving this tremendous secret or to exposing and destroying this gigantic humbug. Faced with such an issue, can you really remain wholly absorbed in your own blessed moral development? (laughs) This is really, I think this is really in the spirit of Paul. All right, Lewis says, all right, Christianity will do you good a great deal more good than you ever wanted or expected. (laughs) And the first bit of good it will do you is to hammer into your head, you won't enjoy that, the fact that what you have hitherto called good, all that about leading a decent life and being kind, isn't quite the magnificent and all-important affair you supposed. (laughs) It will teach you that in fact you can't be good, not for 24 hours on your own moral effort. And then it will teach you that even if you were, you still wouldn't have achieved the purpose for which you were created. Mere morality is not the end of life. The idea of reaching a good life without Christ is based on a double error. First, we cannot do it. And secondly, in setting up a good life as our final goal, we have missed the very point of our existence. When you spend a week reading something like Paul's letters, they tend to rub off on you. And I spent the week reading chapter 1, 2, and 3 of Romans, which is in the time-honored tradition we call diatribe. But that's a respectable tradition by the respectable genre. We use it almost always in the pejorative. But for Paul, it was a, and for people of Paul's time, it was a legitimate form of argumentation, which was usually accompanied by something else more subtle. In any event, reading chapter 1, 2, and 3 of Paul rubbed off on me in a sort of mimetic way, and I found myself thinking in diatribe Ways, so I immediately resisted that I'm a modern I know all about diatribes they're not very much fun and so on and so I spent the week resisting that and then this morning I was reading the paper and I saw a few things that convinced me that I would give up the attempt to not deliver a diatribe and go ahead and deliver one in part for the same reason that Paul delivered his because that's what it takes you know Lannery O'Connor wrote these short stories that look like gargoyles, and people said to her, uh, What are you doing? And she said, Well, the modern world is so lost that you have to hit it over the head with a two-by-four to get its attention. And I think that's how Paul feels when he's writing the first three chapters of Letter of Romans, And I, that's how I felt this morning after reading the newspaper. It's how I feel often after reading the newspaper, but this morning was an instance of that. But I want to say that what I hope we're about here and what certainly Paul is about here is not morality in the limited sense, that what Paul is trying to reveal is something of universal significance and of profound religious and spiritual significance. But he knows better than we that you cannot disconnect the moral from the religious. The other thing, maybe I could say, is that in one of Paul's diatribes later on, uh, in Romans, in chapter three of Romans, he ha- he lists a whole group of quotations from the Scriptures, all of which uh, say that nobody is upright, nobody is righteous. All are all stand under judgment. And C.K. Barrett referred to this little litany. With these words. He said, Paul may have put the quotations together himself. It is not impossible that he drew them from an already existing florilagium. They require little comment. So there was another link between the diatribe and the florilagium. So I'm going to allow myself to engage in a little bit of diatribe. And then at the end, repent of all my sins. For Paul, neither Gentile religion and morality nor Judaism with its monotheism and Mosaic law can save humanity from its penchant for delusion and slavery and violence. And when Paul talks about the Gentiles and the Jews, that means the world. There's a, For Paul, there's only two categories, the Gentiles, which are non-Jews, and the Jews. That's it. So when he talks about the the Gentile world, that's everybody else. Paul is convinced that neither the Gentile world nor the Jewish world is capable of, of freeing itself from the grip of what he calls sin, death, and wrath. Only, he says, the gospel has that power. And it is by power that the gospel does it. The gospel is not... Words. It's not ideas that one gives assent to. It's not the biography of Jesus. It's not the story of the Passion. Uh, The Gospel is all of those things. It's the story. It's the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. But it's the power that's unleashed in the telling and, and meditating upon the meaning of that story. It's a power for Paul. And he uses the word dunamis, from which we get the word dynamite and dynamo, the gospel has power, and we are in the grip of another power—an enormously powerful power, which Paul calls sin, singular, meaning not little mistakes we make, but some something that that envelops us and that it infects our 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 mental clarity as well as our moral behavior uh, and our religious lives as well. So that so that. Paul really sees a struggle going on between two realities. Sometimes he talks of them in in temporal terms, or, or to some extent temporal terms, the old eon and the new eon, although they overlap. And sometimes he talks about them in terms of the power of sin or the power of grace and faith. But you'll see right away that Paul is no diplomat. Paul says the gospel is the only thing that has the power to save us from this, from the grip of this other system. Nothing else can. Everything else is an attempt to minimize the impact of that other system, to ameliorate its destructiveness, but never can any of these systems of amelioration extricate us from it. Only the gospel, Paul says, can do that. And so you would say, well, Paul is not very diplomatic and not very ecumenical. It sounds as though he's not very ecumenical. I think he's a father of ecumenism in a way. Because he says in the letter to the Romans, the very letter in which he makes this proclamation, he says, the Gentiles had their way of knowing the goodness of God, the goodness of creation, uh, a sense of moral uh, probity and so on, and they ignored it. The Jews had their law, the Mosaic Law, which was a way of trying to behave oneself within this system, and they and they used it in a haphazard way or they ignored it or and it didn't work for them and so on. But he's has he, he's he says all of these systems, Gentile and Jewish both, are to one degree or another noble or ignoble systems or attempts at extricating and that they stand in some relation to the final final Thing that does extricate it. So, in a sense, at the very moment that he is saying he's he's saying the gospel is singular and superior, he is also recognizing its relationship to other ways of trying to extricate us from this from this uh, the tyranny of sin. If I say Paul is the father of ecumenism, what do I mean by that? I would say it this way. Pagan religion often tells of a founding event which is just exactly like the crucifixion, except that it's covered over in mythic justification. So the raw material for the Christian revelation is everywhere you look. It's in the it's latent in the myths of pagan religion. It's prefigured in the Hebrew scriptures. And it's lost, but potentially locatable, in the periodic spasms of righteous violence which focus all the rancor born of mimetic passions onto an expendable enemy or victim and revive social sol- solidarity in the process of expelling it. so that the world is filled with potential biblical revelation or gospel revelation but the system what paul calls the the reign of sin and death casts an enormously powerful spell and it it causes us to fall into a kind of mental and moral myopia in which we cannot recognize what we're doing. We cannot see what we're doing. We can see it in others, perhaps, but we can't see it in ourselves. But the but the power of that system, according to Paul, is not infinite. It can be broken. In fact it has been broken. And the thing that broke the power of that spell was the crucifixion. And we've been over that a number of times. But that's but but Paul is right in line with that understanding of Of the cross. In chapters 1, 2, and 3 in Romans, he is concerned with righteousness, a new kind of righteousness. First of all, with righteousness itself, and then with the kind of righteousness that comes from obeying the law, and with the superior form of righteousness which he has discovered in his life, which is the righteousness that comes from God through faith. And this is very difficult to talk about because the word righteousness maybe leads us astray, and I'll come back to that in a second and redefine what that uh, word means for Paul. But let me just read something again from Andrews Nigran. I'm tempted to do a comment to spend our time performing a commentary on Nigran's commentary because his insights are so are so helpful. But here's something he says. This these are things we need to. We need to learn before we approach Paul, because it's so easy for us moderns to write Paul off. And I feel, you know, as Gerard talks about how the gospel is still out in front of us, we're not—we're barely catching up with it. Instead of thinking the gospel is something two thousand years ago, Gerard says think of it as something that's way into the future. You're just beginning to catch a glimmer of its real significance. And I think this is absolutely true of Paul's great letters, and the Romans is one of those. And we're, we can't really begin to come to grips with it as long as we, ha, as long as we indulge this penchant for writing it off uh, for, for whatever knee-jerk reason. So the first thing I want to do is try to dispense with that. And Nigrant does a marvelous job. He says, It is quite foreign to the thought of Paul to make a sharp distinction between irreligion and immorality. Which a distinction which seems so natural to contemporary interpreters, and farthest from the truth, would be defined in the proposed distinction, a reason for saying that Paul held irreligion's deepest cause to lie in immorality. In other words, Paul cannot separate immorality from irreligion, and it's a and it would be a mistake for us to separate them in our reading of Paul. And secondly, another mistake would be to assume that that uh, immorality was a cause of irreligion. It's the other way around, for Paul. Qu- continuing to quote Nigram, Quite the contrary, Paul is at pains to say that a wrong relation to God is the ultimate cause of man's corruption, moral corruption. We come closest to Paul's thought if we regard the two words, immorality and irreligion, as simply an emphatic expression of one and the same thing. No view could be wider from the mark than to consider, quote, unrighteousness as immorality without reference to the religious fact of man's relationship to God. So, you may have noticed, the modern world has completely separated those two things. Since the Enlightenment, we regard the religious question as a little private, personal thing that you consider on the side not to be, not to uh, invade in any way the problem of morality. And I think think that's been a terrible mistake. I think we can't understand the moral problem that we now face if we do not introduce the religious question into it. And that, to say that is nothing new. That is to, that's simply to agree with the great chorus of thought in our uh, tradition, in the Western tradition, a chorus which has been which has has been interrupted for the last couple of hundred years, but which I think we're now discovering uh, was interrupted uh, inappropriately. So, I want to. I'm going to say some things today that will make you think that I'm a. Uh, I'm a right winger and uh, I'm not I'm not uh so I have so I'm going to begin by quoting the two pe- the two people that I think are I guess there are many people who qualify for this uh Abraham Heschel and Martin Buber and uh, and uh others you know but I, I think, for me, the two people that I think of as being the, 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 the Hebrew prophets of our age are Bob Dylan and Leonard Cohen. So, lest you think I'm a right-wing throwback, I'm going to read to you from Bob Dylan and Leonard Cohen. And what I'm going to read to you is the voice of the Hebrew prophet in our day. Here's what Dylan says in one of his early songs. Did we snap at the bait or did we follow a star through the hole in the wall where the long arm of the law can't reach? Did we snap at the bait? That's the Gentile world To snap at the bait. Or did we follow a star through the hole in the wall where the long arm of the law can't reach? And I think the hole in the wall is the Christian revelation. I think it's the cross. I don't mean to say no, understand, I'm not saying this is what Dylan meant. Although there was a period in Dylan's life when he might have he might have agreed with some of this interpretation. I'm not sure he would anymore. But never- I'm not saying this is what he meant, obviously. I'm interpreting these lines. Mm-hmm. I'm saying they they make a nice entree to what Paul's describing. Mm-hmm. And when Dylan first wrote these lines, and when we all first heard these and lines like them in the 60s we no doubt thought that by following the star through the hole in the wall where the long arm of the law can't reach we were we were uh, escaping from the problem we were getting out of it we were counter cultural but there are a lot of people right now who have who have who find themselves where the long arm of the law can't reach and they're frantically trying to dial 911. You see what I mean? That's a tremendous thing. To move outside of that system of law, which the whole world is gradually doing right now, is an incredibly dangerous situation. Mm -hmm. And I think we're doing it because Uh, a star has led us through that, into that hole in the wall, and we are moving out beyond the world of law and we had better quickly figure out what it is that can replace the law in a world where it's becoming uh, increasingly problematic. So, that's a very cryptic sort of one. Leonard Cohen's version, which is much more recent than the album he did a couple of, three years ago, is much more explicit and to the point, and here Here are excerpts from a song called The Future. Give me back the Berlin Wall. Give me Stalin and St. Paul. I've seen the future, brother, and it's murder. Things are going to slide in all directions. Won't be nothing, nothing you can measure anymore. The blizzard of the world has crossed the threshold, and it has overturned the order of the soul. When they said, repent, I wonder what they meant. When they said, repent, I wonder what they meant. When they said, repent, I wonder what they meant. You don't know me from the wind. You never will, you never did. I'm the little Jew who wrote the Bible. I've seen nations rise and fall. I've heard their stories, heard them all. But love's the only engine of survival. Your servant here... He has been told to say it clear, to say it cold. It's over. It ain't going any further. And now the wheels of heaven stop. You feel the devil's riding crop. Get ready for the future. It is murder. Give me back the Berlin Wall. Give me Stalin and St. Paul. Give me Christ or give me Hiroshima. Destroy another fetus now. We don't like children anyhow. I've seen the future baby. It is murder. Things are going to slide in all directions. Won't be nothing, nothing you can measure anymore. Savor that line for a second. Nothing you can measure anymore. That is to say, no way to make a discerning distinction between what's right and wrong. That's what I think that's fundamentally what he's talking about. And therefore no you know, what Paul says in Romans is that the law made me conscious of sin. You see, when, the, when an officer stops a, somebody for drunk driving, he says, try to walk that straight line. You can't walk it, you're drunk. And neither you nor he knows whether you're drunk until you try and then you can't. So that the law is that little system for alerting us to the fact that something profoundly wrong has happened. And I think this line, nothing, there's nothing you can measure anymore. I think has to do with this, this, the absence of any kind of distinctions that would allow us to realize that something fundamental has gone awry. So back to the last. I'm just this is, I'm just going to repeat the the refrain uh, with which Leonard Cohen's song ends. Things are going to slide in all directions. won't be nothing, nothing you can measure anymore. The blizzard of the world has crossed the threshold and it has overtaken the order of the soul. When they said repent, I wonder what they meant. When they said repent, I wonder what they meant. When they said repent, I wonder what they meant. The word repent is a translation of the word metanoia, which is the word in the New Testament for conversion. It means a new mind, a post-conversion mind. And it's a mind that is suddenly lucid, both mentally and morally. When Paul speaks of the gospel, in the background of everything he says about the gospel is the law. Because Paul, for Paul, the gospel has power, the law does not. The law does not have the power to rescue us from our own sinfulness. The gospel does. Paul says, for in it in the gospel is revealed the righteousness of god and now i'm going to translate this word it's a, it's trend it's a translation it's a greek translation from the hebrew scriptures of tzedakah or tzedek which means which for which we use the word righteousness and it has many meanings but the but in the original hebrew it has a the metaphor is of Bodily uprightness, bodily—it's th- a—it's an—it's rectitude, but uh, it's moral rectitude, but it's moral rectitude that leans heavily on a metaphor of physical uprightness. So many people, Joseph Fitzmyer, who has written an exhaustive commentary on Romans, uses the word, and many other people do too, uses the word uprightness to translate uh, this w- this word here often translated righteousness because it captures a little bit of the metaphor bodily metaphor that was in the Hebrew. And so from now we'll talk I'll occasionally mention righteousness, but remember it means uprightness and I want to explore a little bit about uh, a little bit about uprightness. but let me finish the passage. The gospel in the gospel is revealed the uprightness of God through faith and for faith. As it stands written, and then he quotes from the prophet Habakkuk who says, The one who is upright shall find life through faith. Or in a more familiar translation, He who through faith is upright shall live. So the link here is between faith and God and uprightness. The uprightness that Paul is talking about is the uprightness from God. It's not the moral achievement of the individual. It's another kind of uprightness. So what we have to appreciate is what this word uprightness now means. And that's why I think it's important to bring in the bodily metaphor with our interpretation of it. Because it means, I would say, something like poise. It means something like equilibrium. Uh, It means something uh, like integral. It's integrity in a the word integrity is good because it has both a moral and a psychological echo. Yeah. It's it's like that. But Paul, what Paul is contrasting is the uprightness. First of all, the the unrighteousness or lack of uprightness in the fallen world, the world of the Gentiles, the world of idolatry and and, uh, and immorality and so on. That, the unuprightness of that world, with its obvious moral and religious problems. And secondly, the uprightness of one in in under the law, who is upright because he has obeyed the law. His uprightness is based on fulfilling the requirements of the law. And therefore he has a kind of moral righteousness, but it's all based on his accomplishment. And Paul says that moral uprightness is, is, takes place within the system of sin. And how does he know that? He knows that because he was one. And he suddenly realized that at the, at the peak of his career of moral righteousness, he was the greatest sinner around. And so what he's trying to announce is that you can't get out of that system as long as you're trying to be upright according to the law. So the key to uprightness is faith, which is to say a relationship to God. And that's why for Paul you cannot, as Nygren says, you cannot separate immorality from irreligion, And that's why we, we should not have done it in our world. You can't understand it. What, what, are the, what is the source of integrity? Spiritual, psychological, social poise. I'm not talking about Emily Post. I'm talking about the ability to resist the scandal the the ability to to be in the world but not of it where do we get that and Paul says we get it from to 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 say it in the simplest of terms we get it from a life of prayer we get it from having a relationship with God and that's the source of our uprightness and it has it it produces a moral life; it 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 incline because it makes us it makes us to some degree resistant to the lures of the of the sinful world. So that it protects us from some of these follies that we would fall into, no doubt, without that relationship. So it has very important and and clearly discernible moral implications and and consequences. But it isn't the building up of moral righteousness by obeying the law. It begins with a a relationship. So the ultimate cause of one's unrighteousness for Paul is the failure to find in one's relationship to God the only source of uprightness that is not beholden to the powers of sin and death and therefore subject to God's wrath. And this, this idea of God's wrath Paul, in letter to the Romans and elsewhere, begins a journey toward an, a, another understanding of God's wrath. God's wrath is so much a part of the biblical tradition that to eliminate it would be would be another form of the Marcionite heresy. For Paul, the Gentiles outside of the law were wallowing in confusion and indulgence without even realizing that they were throwing their lives away. And the Jews were looking down on it all, smugly assuming that their moral and religious system, contemptuous as it was of the moral travesties of the Gentiles, represented an absolute break with the sinfulness they condemned. And Paul says it does not. It's inside the system that it's condemned. As I said last week, and I think I mentioned a few minutes ago, Paul's idea is of two, one of his important ideas is of two eons. The old eon, which is the one we're living in, and the new one which we have glimpsed on the horizon and of which the crucifixion, re- Resurrection represent the, the revelation. And Nygren says about Paul, quote, What the new eon is for Paul, he can only tell us by making clear to us what the old eon is. And so he begins with a diatribe. And here's what he has to say. Just as the gospel in in chapter in verse uh, 17 he said the gospel reveals the uprightness that comes from God, so he says now God's wrath is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of human beings who by such wickedness stifle the truth. So God's wrath is being revealed by the wickedness. Paul goes on to say, "The Gentiles are without excuse. They have known God in their own rudimentary way. They have known that the creation was good, but they have given themselves over to what Paul calls feudal thinking. So he's really criticizing the whole the Greek philosophical tradition. He says they think if the if the Jews think that they can work their way out of it by performing the innumerable." Uh, law, you know, living up to the innumerable laws of the Mosaic tradition, the Greeks think they can think their way out of it by analyzing it and by philosophizing about it and by speculating. And both are impotent. Meanwhile, the world is going to hell in a handbasket, Paul said. So he says, he looks out at the Greek world and he says, because of this, because uh, they, the Greeks speculated when you know fiddled while Rome was burning so big God delivered them over to their own mad cravings the, the word here is is epithumia which is an inordinate desire deliver them over to their own mad craving and uh, I think I've mentioned before, the root of that word, "thuo" means sacrifice. So that there is an etymological link between this inordinate desire, epithymia, and sacrifice. But delivered them over. There's an echo of this in Augustine. Well, it's all over Augustine, but there's one this came to mind one place where Augustine says, quote, the consequence of distorted will is passion, By servitude to passion, habit is formed, and habit to which there is no resistance becomes necessity. And it's a kind of progression into a prison in which one doesn't even realize one is in prison. All one is, uh, one is simply tormented by the sterility and unhappiness of the situation. And it has become, it has become so habitual that one doesn't recognize how one got there. And so Paul says God delivered them over uh, to the mad cravings. Now, this is where it gets uncomfortable and decidedly not politically correct. He says this, For this reason God delivered them over. By the way, he uses the word, Delivered them over is now the way God does his wrath. This is why I said... I said Paul was discovering some, beginning that journey of discovering what God's wrath means after the Christian revelation. And now God's wrath takes the form of God delivering people over to the consequences of their own folly. That's very Dantean, by the way. Dante, in, the, you know, in, in Dante, the sin is the the, in Dante, the punishment is the sin at its later stages. And sin is the punishment in its early stages. It's all the same thing. And that's very much like what Paul is beginning to move towards here. He delivered them over to their own folly. In other words, he said, okay, be my guest. I'm not going to pull the fat out of the fire. I'm not going to be there to sacralize the scapegoating violence that you will have to sacralize in order to reconvene and and the, your your culture and return yourself to some kind of social and psychological stability. I'm not going to be it. I'm not going to sanction it. Not only am I not going to sanction it, I'm going to destroy all possibility of ever sanctioning it again. So now you're on your own. There won't be a sacred system for for coming in and rescuing you from your own from your own folly. I'm you know you understand, I'm commenting on Paul and I'm using obviously as your interpretation of Paul, but I think it's implicit, very vividly implicit in what Paul's talking about. Wrath now is God delivering us over to the consequences of our own folly. And he uses it three times deliver them over. First he says he's going to deliver them over to their own mad craving, so that's just epithumia inordinate desire. And where does that desire come from? Well, it comes from the desires of others. It's the desires of others that awaken desire in us. And he delivers them over to that. And then a few lines later, he says, God is going to deliver them over to their disgraceful passions. So now it's a little bit deeper. It has become worse. From epithumia, inordinate desire, to these vile passions. And he enumerates these. In part, he says, their women exchange natural intercourse for that against nature, and their men likewise abandon natural relations with women and burn with lust for one another. Males committing shameless acts with males and being paid in turn for uh, in their persons the wage suited to their deviation. And we all are uncomfortable. We know that we immediately we moderns recognize because the gospels taught us to the scapegoating potential. And we say, Wait, man. And, well, now?" And that's right. This is the double bind the gospel's caught us in, you know. That's right. On the other hand, see, immediately we also come immediately we come to the conclusion that Paul is fixated on sex. The irony is he isn't. But we are. And we're and we're shocked to think that he might be. Mm-hmm. It's we who are fixated on it, not Paul. Paul is talk- Paul has chosen what for him is the most conspicuous symptom of the world going to hell. That is to say what Gerard calls a crisis of distinctions which leads towards a later sacrificial crisis of a full-blown kind. So, I would think by 1994, given what we know, what's happening in our world, that we could get off our high horse when it comes to Paul's comment on sexual perversion. He's not fundamentally interested in sexuality. He's interested in the spiritual disease that has that is at the root of, of a lot of sexual deviation. And he is, I think, correctly chosen sexual problem as the most salient symptom. Sexuality is a very powerful thing in human life and it has to do with human relationships and its stability has to do with the stability of human relationships. If an underlying spiritual problem emerges it will have effects on human relations and one of the most powerful of human relations is the human sexual relation. It will have distorting effects on those relationships. And Paul is right to start there. The Hebrew prophets so often, when they were condemning idolatry, used the metaphor of sexual deviation or harlotry or something like that to talk about idolatry. But that's not because they just wanted to take advantage of the the rich metaphorical possibility. It's for a deeper reason. There is a kind of a link there. So for Paul the underlying problem is the lack of what in the past I've talked about it it's a kind of a neutral way, I should probably talk about it more straightforwardly. I talked about it in terms of the the existence of some transcendence in our life, religious transcendence, or you would say a relationship with God, a life of prayer, a life of faith, with a genuine transcendent dimension. That's for Paul what, what the only thing that's that's the source for Paul of the uprightness that comes from God. Not that comes from one's own attempt to behave. It produces uh, honorable behavior. But the honorable behavior is not something done according to a bunch of rules. Okay, so I want to go back. We talked about this several times when we were studying Virginia Woolf and and even before that, and maybe even since that, but I want to go back to this scene in Virginia Woolf's novel The Wave, which is so, such a vivid picture of precisely what Paul is talking about. It's the scene where the, the boys in the boarding school are going into the chapel, and Lewis is the figure in the novel who represents T.S. Eliot. And like T.S. Eliot, he loves going into the chapel. For him, it's wonderful. And he talks about it as a, as a relief from this world of, of constant competition and, and rivalry outside. He says, Lewis says, now we march two by two, orderly, processional, into chapel. I like the dimness that falls as we enter the sacred building. I like the orderly progress. We file in. We seat ourselves. We put off our distinctions as we enter. It's very important to realize that the crisis outside the, the chapel, let's use this metaphor, the crisis outside the chapel is the crisis of distinctions. All distinctions are being erased. All distinctions are being erased and there's a kind of social meltdown taking place. The distinctions between right and wrong, between sex and violence, between male and female, between good and bad violence, you name it, it's all being dissolved. We're We're experiencing a cultural meltdown. Inside the chapel, we're also experiencing a dissolution of the distinction. Inside the chapel, the dissolution of distinctions is a merciful experience. It's the, it's the realization one has that there, there are no differences between us. We are all together. We are brothers and sisters of one another. None of the social distinctions that may have some hold on us in some other setting have any hold on us there. We're all just brothers and sisters. It's merciful. And that's why I'm saying we shouldn't think that, oh, the world's going to hell out there because it's being completely leveled, and inside somehow we're hanging on to some hierarchy. It's not true. There's only one hierarchy in the Christian revelation, and that is God in the relationship to God. And so I think this T.S. Eliot figure here, Lewis, has it right. He says, we put off distinctions as we enter, and you can tell he's sighing a sigh of relief. And then he says, I like it. When, lurching slightly, but only from his momentum, Dr. Crane mounts the pulpit and reads the lesson from a Bible. I rejoice, he says. My heart expands. I recover my continuity as he reads. I become a figure in procession. And I want to focus on this. I recover my continuity. That could be a synonym for uprightness. I recover my continuity when he reads. Outside those doors, I lose my continuity. I become episodic. Why do I become episodic? Because I'm the shuttlecock for every wind that blows. Every time a, a, a fascinating desire passes by, it lifts my skirts. <laughs> every time some, some little thing goes on, I'm titillated by it. I go off. I'm, you know, I'm into some fashion or I'm into this or I get caught up in it. It's easily. It's all scandalous and intriguing. But in this setting, he says, I recover my continuity. Why? Vertical dimension. Transcendence. And this is written by an agnostic, but it's absolutely a wonderful testimony to what, to what Paul is talking about. That is the uprightness, (parentheses) continuity that comes from God. Not from obeying rules. Nearby is Neville, another of the boys in the boarding school, and he's having a modern experience, a more modern experience, a typical experience. He says, "This brute menaces my liberty when he prays." Looking up at Doctor Crane again now, ah, oh. he menaces my liberty. I jibe and mock at this sad religion, he says, which reminds me of Augustine saying, "The liberty I loved before his conversion, as a as a sort of wanton young man." the liberty I loved was that of a runaway. Yeah. And so Neville says, oh, I can't stand it. He's scandalized by it. Now, there are all kinds... Dr. Crane may have been a windbag and all that. There are all kinds of reasons to be scandalized, but he didn't keep... If Whatever his limitations were as a, as a person, it didn't keep Lewis from having this experience of having his continuity restored. You see what I mean? But for Neville... It doesn't work. Neville finds it a source of resentment. And so, now what's going to happen? Remember in the passion story, it's a stream of consciousness, I shouldn't do it. You know, in the passion story, in John's Gospel, when Jesus is being interrogated by the high priest, Peter denies him three times, and at the critical moment when he emphatically denies him, the author of the Gospel says, now it was cold. Now it was cold, after the denial, and he moves to the little charcoal fire and tries to warm himself in that pathetic way, which is joining the little crowd of the minor functionaries in the high priest's court, hoping to revive some kind of warmth, hoping to generate some kind of warmth in that pathetic way. Okay, think of that. Neville has just written off this other possibility. He doesn't know it because Neville's modern, he doesn't know that what he's written off is the possibility of transcendence. And now he has written it off, but having written it off, his whole life is now going to be a search for transcendence, but a search that takes place on the in the horizontal dimension. It's a mad search for transcendence within the social environment. And that means the whole social environment is going to be turned into this incredible mimetic tangle. Virginia Woolf is a prophet too, you know. The next thing in her novel is, she says, now, this is, Neville is talking, now, I will lean sideways. Even that, remember, the word uprightness means uprightness. And the the vertical or transcendent aspect is what gives that uprightness. For Paul, it's coherent. And Neville says now that that's been done away with. I lean sideways. That's the beginning. It's a it's a sort of creaking and groaning, <laughs> of leaning sideways. And before it's all over with, Neville will be a whiplash going in every direction, ever a shuttlecock for every wind that blows. But the first one is he rejects the transcendence and leans sideways as if to scratch my thigh in other words it's, it's some kind of dissembling so that I can see Percival down at the end of the bench and he admires Percival and Percival is this handsome if intellectually modest creature who suddenly now becomes his idol. And he says, there he sits, upright, upright, among the smaller fry. Uprightness now is, uprightness means how one is doing vis-a-vis all the others. He's now upright in the sense of somehow distinguished, more impressive than all those around him, which is the shabbiest and most effervescent form of uprightness that's the form of uprightness about, about which you could say the world giveth and the world taketh away <laughs> but for the moment Neville is, um, Neville is looking at Percival and admiring him he breathes through his straight nose rather heavily his blue and oddly inexpressive eyes are fixed with pagan indifference upon the pillar opposite he sees nothing he hears nothing he is remote from us all in a pagan universe. Okay, one last thing. He's looking now at Percival. Look, he flicks his hands to the back of his neck. You know, in Genesis it says, we are made in image and likeness of God. Therefore, we should live like God. And we will always live like whatever idols we have. So he says, look at that. He flicks the back of his neck with his hands that way. For such gestures, one falls hopelessly in love for a lifetime. Neville was the homosexual in Virginia Woolf's novel. Then he says, Dalton, Jones, Edgar, and Bateman, other boys in the boarding school, flick their hands to the back of their necks likewise, but they do not succeed. They do not succeed. Okay. That should be the background for our understanding of what Paul is trying to do in the letter of the Romans and why he he has... uh, selected as the first as the point of departure certain what he regards as sexually deviant behavior not because he's a sexologist not because he has a certain sense of uh, of he obviously has a sense of sexual propriety but i think there's a more profound anthropological reason for agreeing with his Decision to start there. But he's interested in something much more profound. So far, he has twice said God delivered them over to their own inordinate desire, epithumia, and secondly, to their shameless passion, disgraceful passion. And now he says it again. As they do not see fit to acknowledge God, again, it's the lack of that transcendence, God delivers them over finally to their to a base mentality or a depraved mind or what is often translated as a reprobate mind and to improper conduct so the reprobate mind so there's a a, a progression from inordinate desire to to disgraceful passion finally it it, it finally has its Full mental effects. A reprobate mind is a mind that is that uh, cannot choose, cannot choose. The Greek word is adakimos adokim, nous, and the root of the first word dokimos, means to approve or discern or choose or affirm, and the negative a ah, adakimos means the inability to. De- discern choose affirm or admire and uh, the mind finally becomes this this fickle confused thing that cannot discern what's going on cannot make commitments because it's living with too many of these these irresistible provocations This process begins with an ordinate desire, a form of desire which tends to produce rivalry between those with competing desires, giving rise to envy, covetousness, and resentment, a form of desire that causes models to become rivals and rivals to become models, and at a later stage, as the amphitheater of social Competition becomes at the same time more frenzied and more convoluted, the erstwhile objects of desire become rivals and the rivals become the objects of desire. Marriages explode and homosexual affairs increase, both occurring against a background of increased social and psychological instability. The problem that Paul is delineating here is not fundamentally a sexual problem. It's a spiritual problem and it's a psychological problem. The promiscuity is psychological promiscuity. The instability is psychological instability. And it's the instability that comes from not having a primary self-constituting relationship with something transcendent. It happens when Neville eliminates that possibility and starts looking left and right down the benches to see where he's going to seek out his next experience of pseudo-transcendence. And it's the modern world. Okay, well, we've been over this before, but Paul is taking us back over it again. Now, he's past the he's past the sexual thing. He Now he's going to the deeper problem. You see, I'm a product of the 60s. And to some extent, our whole culture is. And... We thought in the '60s that the sexual, what was called the sexual revolution, was fundamentally a sexual phenomenon, and certainly Paul doesn't feel that way. Paul sees it, the the alterations in the sexual mores as symptomatic of something much more fundamental. And he also sees it progressing towards something much darker. Here's what he says. Still talking about the Gentiles, but now he's beyond he's not talking about the sexual thing, he's going to the next stage of the problem. Paul sees things in stages. He sees the the inordinate desire, giving birth to to disgraceful passions, and finally giving birth to this to this reprobate mind, this this Failed what what Bob Hamilton Kelly calls the failed mind. The mind that simply cannot function anymore in any morally or religiously significant sense. But now he's going to catalog this. He says, they become filled with every sort of wickedness. Evil, greed. Now, here's the litany. Evil, greed, envy, murder, strife, craftiness, which is duplicity, and resentment. They become gossiping whisperers, slanderers, god-haters, indolent, haughty, boastful contrivers of evil. C.K. Barrett translates this, good at inventing new forms of evil. Rebels against parents, foolish, faithless, uncaring, and pitiless. The last one in this catalog is pitilessness. Pitiless. Philo of Alexandria said of this list that uh, it characterizes what he called the Cain type of mind. And five generations after Cain, the Bible gives us Lamech, And Lamech says, I killed a man for wounding me, a boy for striking me. Sevenfold vengeance for Cain, but seventy-sevenfold for Lamech." The Cain kind of personality I think... Philo of Alexandria is right. I said to myself, "Everybody's going to glare at me and think terrible things of me this week if I get into this." And um, so I better, I better call upon my my friends, the contemporary Hebrew prophets, <coughs> you know, Dylan and Leonard Cohen and others. And secondly, I better have some contemporary so I thought, well that's easy enough I I literally I said this to myself I said okay well that's fine I will simply I'll get it from Time magazine and I'll and my my little discipline hardly a discipline you know is I won't look anywhere else I'll look in this week's time magazine that's it and then I did and my only pro- my only problem was trying to decide which one to use and n- I And just this morning I threw out two that I was bringing from there, but so here's the first one. I'll just read it to you. Now this is for people who say, good gosh, Paul, would you get off it? Come on. You gotta be kidding. You gotta be kidding, Paul. Okay. Obviously the first one will be Rwanda.